Section 8 of Gilbert White's Natural History of Selborne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Natural History of Selborne by Gilbert White. Letters 7 to 15 to the Honourable Danes Barrington. Letter 7 to the Honourable Danes Barrington. Ringmer, near Lewis, October the 8th, 1770. Dear Sir, I am glad to hear that Cookalm is to furnish you with the birds of Jamaica. A sight of the hirundines of that hot and distant land would be great entertainment to me. The Anni of Scopoli are now in my possession, and I have read the Annus Primus with satisfaction, for though some parts of this work are exceptionable, and he may advance some mistaken observations, yet the ornithology of so distant a country as Carniola is very curious. Men that undertake only one district are much more likely to advance natural knowledge than those that grasp at more than they can possibly be acquainted with. Every kingdom, every province, should have its own monographer. The reason, perhaps, why he mentions nothing of Ray's ornithology may be the extreme poverty and distance of his country, into which the works of our great naturalist may have never yet found their way. You have doubts, I know, whether this ornithology is genuine, and really the work of Scopoli. As to myself, I think I discover strong tokens of authenticity. The style corresponds with that of his entomology, and his characters of his ordines and genera are many of them new, expressive, and masterly. He has ventured to alter some of the Linnaean genera with sufficient show of reason. It might perhaps be mere accident that you saw so many swifts, and no swallows, at Staines, because in my long observations of those birds I never could discover the least degree of rivalry or hostility between the species. Ray remarks that birds of the Gallinae order as cocks and hens, partridges and pheasants, etc., are pulveratrices, such as dust themselves, using that method of cleansing their feathers and ridding themselves of their vermin. As far as I can observe, many birds that dust themselves never wash, and I once thought that those birds that wash themselves would never dust, but here I find myself mistaken, for common house-sparrows are great pulveratrices, being frequently seen grovelling and wallowing in dusty roads, and yet they are great washers. Does not the skylark dust? Query. Might not Mahomet and his followers take one method of purification from these pulveratrices? Because I find from travellers of credit that if a strict Mussulman is journeying in a sandy desert where no water is to be found, at stated hours he strips off his clothes and most scrupulously rubs his body over with sand or dust. A countryman told me he had found a young fern-owl in the nest of a small bird on the ground, and that it was fed by the little bird. I went to see this extraordinary phenomenon, and found that it was a young cuckoo hatched in the nest of a titlark. It was become vastly too big for its nest, appearing in tenui re majoris penas nido extendisi. Reader's note. Spreading wings too wide for its nest. End reader's note and was very fierce and pugnacious, pursuing my finger as I teased it for many feet from the nest, and sparring and buffeting with its wings like a gamecock. 
The dupe of a dam appeared at a distance, hovering about with meat in its mouth, and expressing the greatest solicitude. In July I saw several cuckoos skimming over a large pond, and found, after some observation, that they were feeding on the libellulae, or dragonflies, some of which they caught as they settled on the weeds, and some as they were on the wing. Notwithstanding what Linnaeus says, I cannot be induced to believe that they are birds of prey. This district affords some birds that are hardly ever heard of at Selborne. In the first place, considerable flocks of crosspeaks, Loxiae curvirostri, have appeared this summer in the pine groves belonging to this house. The water ousel is said to haunt the mouth of the Lewis River, near New Haven, and the Cornish chuff builds, I know, all along the chalky cliffs of the Sussex shore, and the Cornish chuff builds, I know, all along the chalky cliffs of the Sussex shore. I was greatly pleased to see little parties of ring ousels, my newly discovered migrators, scattered at intervals all along the Sussex Downs from Chichester to Lewis. Let them come from whence they will, it looks very suspicious that they are cantoned along the coast in order to pass the channel when severe weather advances. They visit us again in April, as it should seem, in their return, and are not to be found in the dead of winter. It is remarkable that they are very tame, and seem to have no manner of apprehensions of danger from a person with a gun. There are bustards on the wide downs near Brighthelmstone. No doubt you are acquainted with the Sussex Downs. The prospects and rides round Lewis are most lovely. As I rode along near the coast, I kept a very sharp lookout in the lanes and woods, hoping I might, at this time of the year, have discovered some of the summer short-winged birds of passage crowding towards the coast, in order for their departure. But it was very extraordinary that I never saw a redstart, white-throat, black-cap, uncrested wren, fly-catcher, etc., and I remember to have made the same remark in former years, as I usually come to this place annually about this time. The birds most common along the coast at present are the stone-chatters, wind-chats, buntings, linnets, some few wheat-ears, titlarks, etc. Swallows and house-martins abound yet, induced to prolong their stay by this soft, still, dry season. A land-tortoise, which has been kept for thirty years in a little walled court belonging to the house where I now am visiting, retires underground about the middle of November, and comes forth again about the middle of April. When it first appears in the spring it discovers very little inclination towards food, but in the height of summer grows voracious, and then, as the summer declines, its appetite declines, so that for the last six weeks in autumn it hardly eats at all. Milky plants, such as lettuces, dandelions, sow thistles, are its favourite dish. In a neighbouring village one was kept till, by tradition, it was supposed to be an hundred years old, an instance of vast longevity in such a poor reptile. Letter eight to the Honourable Danes Barrington, Selborne, December twentieth, seventeen seventy. Dear sir, the birds that I took for Aberdevines were reed sparrows, Passeres torquati. There are doubtless many home internal migrations within this kingdom that want to be better understood. Witness those vast flocks of hen chaffinches that appear with us in the winter without hardly any cocks among them. Now was there a due proportion of each sex, it should seem very improbable that any one district should produce such numbers of these little birds, and much more when only half of the species appears. Therefore we may conclude that the Fringilli caelebes, for some good purposes, 
have a peculiar migration of their own in which the sexes part. Nor should it seem so wonderful that the intercourse of sexes in this species of birds should be interrupted in winter, since in many animals, and particularly in bucks and does, the sexes herd separately, except at the season when commerce is necessary for the continuance of the breed. For this matter of the chaffinches, see Fauna Suecica, page 85, and Systema Naturae, page 318. I see every winter vast flights of hen chaffinches, but none of cocks. Your method of accounting for the periodical motions of the British singing birds, or birds of flight, is a very probable one, since the matter of food is a great regulator of the actions and proceedings of the brute creation. There is but one that can be set in competition with it, and that is love. But I cannot quite acquiesce with you in one circumstance, when you advance that when they have thus feasted, they again separate into small parties of five or six, and get the best fare they can within a certain district, having no inducement to go in quest of fresh-turned earth. Now, if you mean that the business of congregating is quite at an end from the conclusion of wheat-sowing to the season of barley and oats, it is not the case with us, for larks and chaffinches, and particularly linnets, flock and congregate as much in the very dead of winter as when the husbandman is busy with his ploughs and harrows. Sure, there can be no doubt but that woodcocks and fieldfares leave us in the spring, in order to cross the seas, and to retire to some districts more suitable to the purpose of breeding, that the former pair before they retire, and that the hens are forward with egg. I myself, when I was a sportsman, have often experienced. It cannot indeed be denied, but that now and then we hear of a woodcock's nest, or young birds, discovered in some part or other of this island, but then they are always mentioned as rarities, and somewhat out of the common course of things. But as to red-wings and field-fares, no sportsman or naturalist has ever yet, that I could hear, pretended to have found the nest, or young, of these species, in any part of these kingdoms, and I the more admire at this instance as extraordinary, since to all appearances the same food in summer as well as in winter might support them here, which maintains their congeners, the blackbirds and thrushes, did they choose to stay the summer through. From hence it appears that it is not food alone which determines some species of birds with regard to their stay or departure. Fieldfares and redwings disappear sooner or later, according as the warm weather comes on earlier or later for I well remember, after that dreadful winter of 1739-40, to 40, that cold north-east winds continued to blow on through April and May, and that these kinds of birds, what few remained of them, did not depart as usual, but were seen lingering about till the beginning of June. The best authority that we can have for the nidification of the birds above mentioned in any district is the testimony of faunists that have written professedly the natural history of particular countries. Now, as to the field-fare, Linnaeus, in his Fauna Suecica, says of it that Maximus in arboribus nidificat, reader's note, it nests in the tallest trees, end reader's note, and of the red-wing he says in the same place that nidificat in medius arbusculis sive sepibus, over sex caruleo viridia maculis nigris varius. Reader's note. It nests in middle-sized bushes or hedges, and it lays six eggs, blue-green in colour with black spots. End reader's note. Hence we may be assured that field fares and red-wings breed in Sweden, 
Scopoli says in his Annus Primus of the woodcock that nupta ad nos venit curca aequinoctium vernale. Reader's note. It comes to us already mated around the spring equinox. End reader's note. Meaning in Tyrol, of which he is a native. And afterwards he adds nidificat in paludibus alpinus over ponit tres quinque. Reader's note. It nests in alpine swampy woodland, laying from three to five eggs. End reader's note. It does not appear from Kramer that woodcocks breed at all in Austria, but he says, Avis Hayek septentrionalium provinciarum aestivo tempori incola est, ubi plurumque nidificat, apropinquante hyemi astroliores provincias petit, hinc circa plenilunium mensis octobris plerumque austrium transmigrat, tunc rursus circa plenilunium potissimum mensis martie per austrium matrimonio juncta ad septentrionales provincias redit. Reader's note. The bird inhabits northern parts in the summer, where it breeds in large numbers. With the approach of winter, it seeks southern countries, from where it crosses Austria in large numbers at the October full moon. Again, if possible, about the time of March full moon, it comes back again through Austria, already mated to the northern parts. End reader's note. For the whole passage, which I have abridged, see Elenchus, etc., page 351. This seems to be a full proof of the migration of woodcocks, though little is proved concerning the place of breeding. P.S. There fell in the county of Rutland, in three weeks of this present very wet weather, seven inches and a half of rain, which is more than has fallen in any three weeks for these thirty years past in that part of the world. A mean quantity in that county for one year is twenty inches and an half. Letter nine to the Honourable Danes Barrington, Fifield, near Andover, February the twelfth, seventeen seventy one. Dear sir, you are, I know, no great friend to migration, and the well-attested accounts from various parts of the kingdom seem to justify you in your suspicions that at least many of the swallow kind do not leave us in the winter, but lay themselves up like insects and bats, in a torpid state, to slumber away the more uncomfortable months till the return of the sun and fine weather awakens them. But then we must not, I think, deny migration in general, because migration certainly does subsist in some places, as my brother in Andalusia has fully informed me. Of the motions of these birds he has ocular demonstration for many weeks together, both spring and fall, during which periods myriads of the swallow kind traverse the straits from north to south, and from south to north, according to the season, and these vast migrations consist not only of hirundines, but of bee-birds, hoopoes, or opendolos, or golden thrushes, etc., etc., and also many of our soft-billed summer birds of passage, and moreover, of birds which never leave us, such as all the various sorts of hawks and kites. Old Bellon, two hundred years ago, gives a curious account of the incredible armies of hawks and kites which he saw in the springtime traversing the Thracian Bosphorus from Asia to Europe. Besides the above-mentioned, he remarks that the procession is swelled by whole troops of eagles and vultures. Now it is no wonder that birds residing in Africa should retreat before the sun as it advances, and retire to milder regions, and especially birds of prey, whose blood being heated with hot animal food, are more impatient of a sultry climate. 
but then I cannot help wondering why kites and hawks, and such hardy birds as are known to defy all the severity of England, and even of Sweden and all North Europe, should want to migrate from the south of Europe, and be dissatisfied with the winters of Andalusia. It does not appear to me that much stress may be laid on the difficulty and hazard that birds must run in their migrations, by reason of vast oceans, cross-winds, etc., because, if we reflect, a bird may travel from England to the equator without launching out and exposing itself to boundless seas, and that by crossing the water at Dover and again at Gibraltar. And I with the more confidence advance this obvious remark, because my brother has always found that some of his birds, and particularly the swallow kind, are very sparing of their pains in crossing the Mediterranean, for when arrived at Gibraltar they do not, ranged in figure, wedge their way, and set forth their airy caravan high over seas, flying, and over lands with mutual wing easing their flight, Milton, but scout and hurry along in little detached parties of six or seven in a company, and sweeping low just over the surface of the land and water, direct their course to the opposite continent at the narrowest passage they can find. They usually slope across the bay to the south-west, and so pass over opposite to Tangier, which, it seems, is the narrowest space. In former letters we have considered whether it was probable that woodcocks in moonshiny nights cross the German Ocean from Scandinavia, as a proof that birds of less speed may pass that sea, considerable as it is, I shall relate the following incident, which, though mentioned to have happened so many years ago, was strictly matter-of-fact. As some people were shooting in the parish of Trotton, in the county of Sussex, they killed a duck in that dreadful winter of 1708-9 with a silver collar about its neck, on which were engraven the arms of the King of Denmark. This anecdote the rector of Trotton at that time has often told to a near relation of mine, and to the best of my remembrance the collar was in the possession of the rector. Note, I have read a like anecdote of a swan. End note. At present I do not know anybody near the seaside that will take the trouble to remark at what time of the moon woodcocks first come. If I lived near the sea myself, I would soon tell you more of the matter. One thing I used to observe when I was a sportsman, that there were times in which woodcocks were so sluggish and sleepy that they would drop again when flushed, just before the spaniels, nay, just at the muzzle of a gun that had been fired at them. Whether this strange laziness was the effect of a recent fatiguing journey, I shall not presume to say. Nightingales not only never reached Northumberland and Scotland, but also, as I have been always told, Devonshire and Cornwall. In those two last counties we cannot attribute the failure of them to the want of warmth. The defect in the West is rather a presumptive argument that these birds come over to us from the continent at the narrowest passage, and do not stroll so far westward. Let me hear, from your own observation, whether skylarks do not dust. I think they do, and if they do, whether they wash also. The allorda pretensis of Ray was the poor dupe that was educating the booby of a cuckoo mentioned in my letter of October last. Your letter came too late for me to procure a ring oozel for Mr. Tunstall during their autumn visit, but I will endeavour to get him one when they call on us again in April. I am glad that you and that gentleman saw my Andalusian birds. I hope they answered your expectation. Royston, or grey crows, are winter birds that come much about the same time with the woodcocks. 
they, like the field fare and redwing, have no apparent reason for migration, for as they fare in the winter like their congeners, so might they, in all appearance, in the summer. Was not Tennant, when a boy, mistaken? Did he not find a missel-thrush's nest, and take it for the nest of a field fare? The stock-dove, or wood-pigeon, Enus rei, is the last winter bird of passage which appears with us, and is not seen till towards the end of November. About twenty years ago they abounded in the district of Selborne, and strings of them were seen morning and evening, that reached a mile or more. But, since the beech and woods have been greatly thinned, they are much decreased in number. The ring-dove, Palumbus rei, stays with us the whole year, and breeds several times through the summer. Before I received your letter of October last, I had just remarked in my journal that the trees were unusually green. This uncommon verdure lasted on late into November, and may be accounted for from a late spring, a cool and moist summer, but more particularly from vast armies of chafers or tree-beetles, which in many places reduced whole woods to a leafless, naked state. These trees shot again at midsummer, and then retained their foliage till very late in the year. My musical friend, at whose house I am now visiting, has tried all the owls that are his near neighbours with a pitch-pipe, set at concert pitch, and finds they all hoot in B-flat. He will examine the nightingales next spring. I am, etc., etc. Letter 10 to the Honourable Danes Barrington, Selborne, August the 1st, 1771. Dear Sir, from what follows it will appear that neither owls nor cuckoos keep to one note. A friend remarks that many, most, of his owls hoot in B-flat, but that one went almost half a note below A. The pipe he tried their notes by was a common half-crown pitch-pipe, such as masters use for tuning of harpsichords. It was the common London pitch. A neighbour of mine, who is said to have a nice ear, remarks that the owls about this village hoot in three different keys in G-flat, or F-sharp, in B-flat, and A-flat. He heard two hooting to each other, the one in A-flat and the other in B-flat. Query. Do these different notes proceed from different species, or only from various individuals? The same person finds upon trial that the note of the cuckoo, of which we have but one species, varies in different individuals, for about Selborne Wood he found they were mostly in D. He heard two sing together, the one in D, the other in D-sharp, who made a disagreeable concert. He afterwards heard one in D-sharp, and about Woolmer Forest, some in C. As to nightingales, he says that their notes are so short, and their transitions are so rapid, that he cannot well ascertain their key. Perhaps in a cage and in a room, their notes may be more distinguishable. This person has tried to settle the notes of a swift, and of several other small birds, but cannot bring them to any criterion. As I have often remarked that redwings are some of the first birds that suffer with us in severe weather, it is no wonder at all they retreat from Scandinavian winters, and much more the Ordo Grelli, who, all to a bird, forsake the northern parts of Europe at the approach of winter. Grelle tanquem conjugate unanimita in fugem se conjiciunt, ne earum unicam quidem internos habitantem in veneri possumus. Ut enim aestati in Australibus degere nequeunt ob defectum lumbricorum, teramque sicam, ita nequim frigidus ob candem corsum. Readers note, in one body, as if they had conspired, 
the waders take to flight, we may be unable to find even one of them making its home among us, for as in summer they cannot live in southern lands because of the lack of worms and the parched soil, so, for the same reason, they cannot live in cold regions. End reader's note. So says Eckmark the Swede in his ingenious little treatise called Migrationes Avium, which by all means you ought to read while your thoughts run on the subject of migration. Birds may be so circumstanced as to be obliged to migrate in one country and not in another, but the grallet, which procure their food from marshes and boggy grounds, must in winter forsake the more northerly parts of Europe, or perish for want of food. I am glad you are making inquiries from Linnaeus concerning the woodcock. It is expected of him that he should be able to account for the motions and manner of life of the animals of his own fauna. Faunists, as you observe, are too apt to acquiesce in bare descriptions and a few synonyms. The reason is plain, because all that may be done at home in a man's study, but the investigation of the life and conversation of animals is a concern of much more trouble and difficulty, and is not to be attained but by the active and inquisitive, and by those that reside much in the country. Foreign systematics are, I observe, much too vague in their specific differences, which are almost universally constituted by one or two particular marks, the rest of the description running in general terms. But our countryman, the excellent Mr. Ray, is the only describer that conveys some precise idea in every term or word, maintaining his superiority over his followers and imitators, in spite of the advantage of fresh discoveries and modern information. At this distance of years it is not in my power to recollect at what periods woodcocks used to be sluggish or alert when I was a sportsman, but upon my mentioning this circumstance to a friend, he thinks he has observed them to be remarkably listless against snowy foul weather. If this should be the case, then the inaptitude for flying arises only from an eagerness for food, as sheep are observed to be very intent on grazing against stormy wet evenings. I am, etc., etc. Letter 11 to the Honourable Danes Barrington. Selborne, February the 8th, 1772. Dear Sir, when I ride about in the winter, and see such prodigious flocks of various kinds of birds, I cannot help admiring at these congregations, and wishing that it was in my power to account for those appearances almost peculiar to the season. The two great motives which regulate the proceedings of the brute creation are love and hunger. The former incites animals to perpetuate their kind, the latter induces them to preserve individuals. Whether either of these should seem to be the ruling passion in the matter of congregating is to be considered. As to love, that is out of the question at a time of the year when that soft passion is not indulged. Besides, during the amorous season, such a jealousy prevails between the male birds that they can hardly bear to be together in the same hedge or field. Most of the singing and elation of spirits of that time seem to me to be the effect of rivalry and emulation, and it is to this spirit of jealousy that I chiefly attribute the equal dispersion of birds in the spring over the face of the country. Now, as to the business of food, as these animals are actuated by instinct to hunt for necessary food, they should not, one would suppose, crowd together in pursuit of sustenance, at a time when it is most likely to fail. Yet such associations do take place in hard weather chiefly, and thicken as the severity increases. As some kind of self-interest and self-defence is no doubt the motive for the proceedings, may it not arise from the helplessness of their state in such rigorous seasons, as men crowd together when under great calamities, 
though they know not why. Perhaps approximation may dispel some degree of cold, and a crowd may make each individual appear safer from the ravages of birds of prey and other dangers. If I admire when I see how much congenerous birds love to congregate, I am the more struck when I see incongruous ones in such strict amity. If we do not much wonder to see a flock of rooks, usually attended by a train of doors, yet it is strange that the former should so frequently have a flight of starlings for their satellites. Is it because rooks have a more discerning scent than their attendants, and can lead them to spots more productive of food? Anatomists say that rooks, by reason of two large nerves which run down between the eyes into the upper mandible, have a more delicate feeling in their beaks than other round-billed birds, and can grope for their meat when out of sight. Perhaps, then, their associates attend them on the motive of interest, as greyhounds wait on the motions of their finders, and as lions are said to do on the yelpings of jackals. Lapwings and starlings sometimes associate. Letter twelve to the Honourable Danes Barrington, March the ninth, seventeen seventy two. Dear sir, as a gentleman and myself were walking on the fourth of last November round the sea banks at New Haven, near the mouth of the Lewis River, in pursuit of natural knowledge, we were surprised to see three house swallows gliding very swiftly by us. That morning was rather chilly, with the wind at northwest, but the tenor of the weather for some time before had been delicate, and the noons remarkably warm. From this incident, and from repeated accounts which I meet with, I am more and more induced to believe that many of the swallow kinds do not depart from this island, but lay themselves up in holes and caverns, and do, insect-like and bat-like, come forth at mild times, and then retire again to their latibri. Nor make I the least doubt but that, if I lived at New Haven, Seaford, Brighthelmstone, or any of those towns near the chalk cliffs of the Sussex coast, by proper observations I should see swallows stirring at periods of the winter, when the noons were soft and inviting, and the sun warm and invigorating. And I am the more of this opinion from what I have remarked during some of our late springs, that though some swallows did make their appearance about the usual time, that is, the 13th or 14th of April, yet meeting with an harsh reception and blustering cold north-east winds, they immediately withdrew, absconding for several days, till the weather gave them better encouragement. Letter 13 to the Honourable Danes Barrington, April the 12th, 1772. Dear Sir, while I was in Sussex last autumn, my residence was at the village near Lewis, from whence I had formerly the pleasure of writing to you. On the 1st of November, I remarked that the old tortoise, formerly mentioned, began first to dig the ground in order to the forming of its hibernaculum, which it had fixed on just beside a great tuft of hepaticas. It scrapes out the ground with its forefeet, and throws it up over its back with its hind, but the motion of its legs is ridiculously slow, little exceeding the hour-hand of a clock, and suitable to the composure of an animal said to be a whole month in performing one feat of copulation. Nothing can be more assiduous than this creature, night and day, in scooping the earth, and forcing its great body into the cavity. But as the noons of that season proved unusually warm and sunny, it was continually interrupted, and called forth by the heat in the middle of the day, and though I continued there till the 13th of November, yet the work remained unfinished. Harsher weather and frosty mornings would have quickened its operations. No part of its behaviour ever struck me more than the extreme timidity it always expresses with regard to rain, for though it has a shell that would secure it against the wheel of a loaded cart, 
yet does it discover as much solicitude about rain as a lady dressed in all her best attire, shuffling away on the first sprinklings, and running its head up in a corner. If attended to, it becomes an excellent weather-glass, for as sure as it walks elate, and as it were on tiptoe, feeding with great earnestness in a morning, so sure will it rain before night. It is totally a diurnal animal, and never pretends to stir after it becomes dark. The tortoise, like other reptiles, has an arbitrary stomach as well as lungs, and can refrain from eating as well as breathing for a great part of the year. When first awakened it eats nothing, nor again in the autumn before it retires. Through the height of the summer it feeds voraciously, devouring all the food that comes in its way. I was much taken with its sagacity in discerning those that do it kind offices, for as soon as the good old lady comes in sight who has waited on it for more than thirty years, it hobbles towards its benefactress with awkward alacrity, but remains inattentive to strangers. Thus not only the ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 3, but the most abject reptile and torpid of beings distinguishes the hand that feeds it, and is touched with the feelings of gratitude. I am, etc., etc. P.S. In about three days after I left Sussex the tortoise retired into the ground under the hepatica. Letter 14 to the Honourable Danes Barrington, Selborne, March the 26th, 1773. Dear Sir, the more I reflect on the stalker of animals, the more I am astonished at its effects. Nor is the violence of this affection more wonderful than the shortness of its duration. Thus every hen is in her turn the virago of the yard, in proportion to the helplessness of her brood, and will fly in the face of a dog or sow in defence of those chickens which in a few weeks she will drive before her with relentless cruelty. This affection sublimes the passions, quickens the invention, and sharpens the sagacity of the brute creation. Thus an hen just become a mother is no longer that placid bird she used to be, but with feathers standing on end, wings hovering, and clocking note, she runs about like one possessed. Dams will throw themselves in the way of the greatest danger in order to avert it from their progeny. Thus a partridge will tumble along before a sportsman in order to draw away the dogs from her helpless covey. In the time of nidification the most feeble birds will assault the most rapacious. All the hirundines of a village are up in arms at the sight of an hawk, whom they will persecute till he leaves that district. A very exact observer has often remarked that a pair of ravens nesting in the rock of Gibraltar would suffer no vulture or eagle to rest near their station, but would drive them from the hill with an amazing fury. Even the blue thrush at the season of breeding would dart out from the clefts of the rocks to chase away the kestrel or the sparrowhawk. If you stand near the nest of a bird that has young, she will not be induced to betray them by an inadvertent fondness but will wait about at a distance with meat in her mouth for an hour together. Should I farther corroborate what I have advanced above by some anecdotes which I probably may have mentioned before in conversation, yet you will, I trust, pardon the repetition for the sake of illustration. The flycatcher of the zoology, the stopperola of Ray, builds every year in the vines that grow on the walls of my house. A pair of these little birds had one year inadvertently placed their nest on a naked bough, perhaps in a shady time, not being aware of the inconvenience that followed, but an hot sunny season coming on before the brood was half-fledged. The reflection of the wall became insupportable, and must inevitably have destroyed the tender young, had not affection suggested an expedient. 
and prompted the parent birds to hover over the nest all the hotter hours, while with wings expanded and mouths gaping for breath they screened off the heat from their suffering offspring. A further instance I once saw of notable sagacity in a willow-wren, which had built in a bank in my fields. This bird a friend and myself had observed as she sat in her nest, but were particularly careful not to disturb her, though we saw she eyed us with some degree of jealousy. Some days after, as we passed that way, we were desirous of remarking how this brood went on, but no nest could be found, till I happened to take up a large bundle of long green moss, as it were carelessly thrown over the nest, in order to dodge the eye of any impertinent intruder. A still more remarkable mixture of sagacity and instinct occurred to me one day, as my people were pulling off the lining of an hotbed in order to add some fresh dung. From out of the side of this bed leapt an animal with great agility that made a most grotesque figure, nor was it without great difficulty that it could be taken, when it proved to be a large white-bellied field-mouse, with three or four young clinging to her teats by their mouths and feet. It was amazing that the desultory and rapid motions of this dam should not oblige her litter to quit their hold, especially when it appeared that they were so young as to be both naked and blind. To these instances of tender attachment, many more of which might be daily discovered by those that are studious of nature, may be opposed that rage of affection, that monstrous perversion of the otorga, which induces some females of the brute creation to devour their young because their owners have handled them too freely, or removed them from place to place. Swine, and sometimes the more gentle race of dogs and cats, are guilty of this horrid and preposterous murder. When I hear now and then of an abandoned mother that destroys her offspring, I am not so much amazed, since reason perverted and the bad passions let loose are capable of any enormity. But why the parental feelings of brutes, that usually flow in one most uniform tenor, should sometimes be so extravagantly diverted, I leave to abler philosophers than myself to determine. I am, etc. Letter 15 to the Honourable Danes Barrington Selborne, July the 8th, 1773. Dear Sir, some young men went down lately to a pond near the verge of Walmer Forest, to hunt flappers, or young wild ducks, many of which they caught, and among the rest some very minute yet well-fledged wild fowls alive, which upon examination I found to be teals. I did not know till then that teals ever bred in the south of England, and was much pleased with the discovery. This I look upon as a great stroke in natural history. We have had, ever since I can remember, a pair of white owls that constantly breed under the eaves of this church. As I have paid good attention to the manner of life of these birds during their season of breeding, which lasts the summer through, the following remarks may not perhaps be unacceptable. About an hour before sunset, for then the mice begin to run, they sally forth in quest of prey, and hunt all round the hedges of meadows and small enclosures for them, which seem to be their only food. In this irregular country we can stand on an eminence and see them beat the fields over like a setting-dog, and often drop down in the grass or corn. I have minuted these birds with my watch for an hour together, and have found that they return to their nests, the one or the other of them, about once in five minutes reflecting at the same time on the adroitness that every animal is possessed of as regards the well-being of itself and offspring. But a piece of address which they show when they return loaded 
should not, I think, be passed over in silence. As they take their prey with their claws, so they carry it in their claws to their nest. But as the feet are necessary in their ascent under the tiles, they constantly perch first on the roof of the chancel, and shift the mouse from their claws to their bill, that the feet may be at liberty to take hold of the plate on the wall, as they are rising under the eaves. White owls seem not, but in this I am not positive, to hoot at all. All that clamorous hooting appears to me to come from the wood-kinds. The white owl does indeed snore and hiss in a tremendous manner, and these menaces well answer the intention of intimidating, for I have known a whole village up in arms on such an occasion, imagining the churchyard to be full of goblins and spectres. White owls also often scream horribly as they fly along. From this screaming probably arose the common people's imaginary species of screech-owl, which they superstitiously think attends the windows of dying persons. The plumage of the remiges of the wings of every species of owl that I have yet examined is remarkably soft and pliant. Perhaps it may be necessary that the wings of these birds should not make much resistance or rushing, that they may be enabled to steal through the air unheard upon a nimble and watchful quarry. While I am talking of owls, it may not be improper to mention what I was told by a gentleman of the county of Wilts. As they were grubbing a vast hollow pollard ash that had been the mansion of owls for centuries, he discovered at the bottom a mass of matter that at first he could not account for. After examination he found it was a conjurie of the bones of mice, and perhaps of birds and bats, that had been heaping together for ages, being cast up in pellets out of the crops of many generations of inhabitants. For owls cast up the bones, fur, and feathers of what they devour, after the manner of hawks, he believes, he told me, that there were bushels of this kind of substance. When brown owls hoot, their throats swell as big as an hen's egg. I have known an owl of this species live a full year without any water. Perhaps the case may be the same with all birds of prey. When owls fly, they stretch out their legs behind them as a balance to their large heavy heads. For as most nocturnal birds have large eyes and ears, they must have large heads to contain them. Large eyes, I presume, are necessary to collect every ray of light, and large concave ears to command the smallest degree of sound or noise. I am, etc. The Hirondines are a most inoffensive, harmless, entertaining, social, and useful tribe of birds. They touch no fruit in our gardens, delight, all except one species, in attaching themselves to our houses, amuse us with their migrations, songs, and marvellous agility, and clear our outlets from the annoyance of gnats and other troublesome insects. Some districts in the South Seas near Guiaquil are desolated, it seems, by the infinite swarms of venomous mosquitoes which fill the air and render those coasts insupportable. It would be worth inquiring whether any species of hirundines is found in those regions. Whoever contemplates the myriads of insects that sport in the sunbeams of a summer evening in this country, will soon be convinced to what a degree our atmosphere would be choked with them, was it not for the friendly interposition of the swallow tribe. Many species of birds have their particular lice, but the hirundines alone seem to be annoyed with the dipterous insects, which infest every species, and are so large in proportion to themselves that they must be truly irksome and injurious to them. These are the Hippobosque hirundinus, with narrow, subulated wings, abounding in every nest, and are hatched by the warmth of the bird's own body during incubation, and crawl about under its feathers. 
A species of them is familiar to horsemen in the south of England, under the name of forest-fly, and to some of side-fly, from its running sideways like a crab. It creeps under the tails and about the groins of horses, which at their first coming out of the north are rendered half frantic by the tickling sensation, while our own breed little regards them. The curious Romeo discovered the large eggs, or rather pupae, of these flies, as big as the flies themselves, which he hatched in his own bosom. Any person that will take the trouble to examine the old nests of either species of swallows may find in them the black shining cases of the pupae of these insects. But for other particulars too long for this place, we refer the reader to l'histoire d'insectes of that admirable entomologist. The end of section 8 of Gilbert White's The Natural History of Selborne.